the fourth watch starts now. You're listening to Omega Frequency with BDK on the Fourth Watch Radio Network. You are listening to Omega Frequency. This is a podcast about the beginning of the end. I'm your host, BDK. This is Lesson 5 of Bride Boot Camp, and it is entitled, The Enforcers. Welcome to another episode of Omega Frequency, everyone. Omega Frequency is dedicated to encouraging and equipping the remnant bride of Christ and proclaiming the return of Yeshua the Messiah as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Thank you for joining me for another edition of Bride Boot Camp. Bride Boot Camp is a series of monthly teaching lessons that focus on training the remnant bride of Christ to live spirit-filled lives in light of his soon coming. Now, if this is your first time checking out the podcast, then thank you so much for taking the time to download this week's episode. I hope that it's going to be a blessing to you. And if you're a returning listener, then thank you so much for coming back and supporting this podcast week after week. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can listen to new episodes of this podcast when they air on Mondays. You can do that by subscribing for absolutely free on iTunes, or you can listen on demand anytime you want by visiting our podcast archives over at omegafrequency.com. We're also blessed to be part of the Fourth Watch Radio Network. If you visit fourthwatchradio.com, you're going to be able to check out a wide variety of episodes that cover both paranormal and prophetic topics from a biblical worldview and perspective. Today we're going to finish our first series in Bride Boot Camp. Now this series has been focusing on the mission of the church. In lesson one of the series, we learned the purpose of the church. God is a God of life. He is the God of the living. And Jesus Christ is that very life of God. God wants his creation to know that he's real, and he wants to reveal himself to a world that is dying. We are his ambassadors. That is why we are called. We have been commissioned to carry this testimony of life into a world that is separated from him. In lesson two, we learn that the kingdom of hell and death is at conflict with the kingdom of light and life. And due to the nature of this conflict, we find ourselves smack dab in the middle of that war. Satan chooses to wage war against us by trying to hinder the body of Christ from fulfilling its called mission. This is the very reason for spiritual warfare itself. However, a path of victory has been laid out for us, and that path starts at Calvary, where Jesus died for our sins and shed his almighty blood on our behalf. In Lesson 3, we discussed the resurrection victory that occurred after Calvary. This resurrection power is available to us. It makes us new creations. God is fashioning for himself a new holy vessel, the bride of Christ. He equips that vessel with power from on high, just as he did on the day of Pentecost. In lesson four, we investigated the commission that we were given on the day of Pentecost. We studied the power God gave us to fulfill that great commission. Each generation must embrace this commission for themselves and do their part to fulfill it before Christ returns. 
How we go about fulfilling it is so very important because everything produces after its own kind. We will either produce spiritual converts or worldly converts depending on the methods that we use to reach them. Now in our final lesson in this series on the church's mission, we will look at how we actually possess the actual victory of the cross and the resurrection on a personal and spiritual level. How do we walk in the power of Pentecost on a daily basis? How do we apply everything that we've been talking about so that we can be effective heavenly ambassadors? How can we enforce the victory that Christ won for us in our own lives? Find out today in Lesson 5, The Enforcers. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Bride Boot Camp. Here are the scriptures for this month's lesson. Colossians 2.15 And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Romans 16.20 And the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Ephesians 6.12, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Exodus 23.29-30, I will not drive them out from before thee in one year, lest the land become desolate and the beasts of the field multiply against thee. By little and little I will drive them out from before thee until thou be increased and inherit the land. Matthew 11:12. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. Luke 19:13. And he called his ten servants and delivered them ten pounds, and said unto them, Occupy till I come. Second Timothy 4:7. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Luke 21:19. In your patience, possess ye your souls. Now, as we come to the final lesson in this first series of Bride Boot Camp, I want to honestly say that this could be the most important lesson because when it comes to our roles as ambassadors in this conflict, we are to manifest an authentic witness of the life of Christ here on this earth. But how do we do that? You know, it's one thing to understand that victory, that Christ won for us on a theological level. But it's another thing to apply and enforce that victory in our lives. It's it's one thing to understand the power that we've been given as heaven's ambassadors to complete our commission on a theological level. But it's a whole other thing to apply and enforce that victory in our life. And don't get me wrong, it's super important to understand theology. And it's even more important now more than ever because deep and balanced classical theology from a spirit-filled perspective is rarely taught today. Every single truth that we hold to must be based on the Word of God. And we are to daily study and search the Word so that we can have a sure foundation to build our lives upon. But then there's that part that's just a little bit more challenging 
it comes to the point where we must apply that truth to ourselves on a personal level. We must actually become the truth that we possess. The word is alive. And when people see that the truth can transform a person, that victory over death, hell, and self is actually possible, when we become living witnesses to the fact that Jesus is truly alive, that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, when the proof is in the pudding, when we worship and witness and walk in spirit and in truth, that is when the world has something that is of value to see. That is when we have truly apprehended our mission as heaven's ambassadors. Now, the first truth that we have to grasp fully is found in our first scripture lesson for this lesson. Colossians 2.15 says, And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. The triumph that Christ won over the principalities and the powers is complete. It happened 2,000 years ago after his death and resurrection. The Bible says that it is a done deal. He has spoiled them. He has robbed them of their victory. And he made a show of them openly, which means that he took a heavenly victory march, much like a king who would conquer a nation, would parade through the streets with his enemies in chains following behind him, That is what Christ did. He settled it. And yet, we read in Ephesians 6.12 this, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. So how come we are wrestling with these same principalities and powers in Ephesians 6.12? If the victory is complete, if Christ had spoiled these principalities and powers in Colossians 2.15. If Christ did win this victory, and he did crush or bruise the head of Satan, why does it seem like that victory is still on its way, and that we haven't apprehended it yet? I mean, after all, Romans 16.20 does say, and the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. I mean, it seems like there's a disconnect here. Did Jesus win this victory, or do we have to wrestle for it? Did Jesus bruise Satan, or is that something that will happen to us shortly? Why does there seem to be a distinction or a distortion here? It seems that while Satan is already under Jesus' feet already, in Romans 16.20, it seems that he will be under our feet shortly. So it seems like it's still in the process of happening. How can that be? Well, I believe the answer can be found in Exodus 23, 29 through 30. God says, I will not drive them out from before thee in one year, lest the land become desolate and the beasts of the field multiply against thee. By little and little, I will drive them out from before thee until thou be increased and inherit the land. In the Exodus account, we have the story of how God rescued and redeemed Israel from the bondage of Egypt. They were slaves in a foreign land that was not their own. They were in bondage to Pharaoh. They were in bondage to the gods of Egypt. Now, God delivered them himself 
by his own almighty hand. He supernaturally attacked the spiritual principalities of Egypt in each one of the plagues. He forced Pharaoh to let his people go. They left Egypt because God promised them their own land, the promised land of Israel. Even though currently at the time of the Exodus, that promised land belonged to pagan forces. It was overrun by giants. That land did not necessarily belong to Israel in their view, but in God's view, it did because it belonged to God. In God's view, those dark forces, those giants, those pagan people, those Canaanites were squatters. Israel had possession of that land from the moment God promised it because God cannot lie. When he promised it to Abraham, he settled his word forever in heaven. That land was in the place of complete possession already. As far as God was concerned, even though there were Canaanites there, that victory was already secured. And he himself, through the angel of the Lord and the heavenly host of heaven, the armies of heaven, they were going to drive out those giants, those pagan people, little by little. That was God's end of it. That was what God was going to do. The children of Israel, they had a part to play too. Through their obedience, they were to possess the land. They were to take possession of that land in partnership with God, and they were to enforce the victory that the angel of the Lord or God was giving them. As they possessed the land, they were taking the victory that was actually settled in heaven the day it was promised to Abraham, and they will cross over from potential to possession at the Battle of Jericho. Now, this battle for victory in our spiritual life is also progressive in that nature. God's victory is absolute. Jesus' victory over principalities and powers is settled forever in heaven. All of his enemies have been met and they have been vanquished at his death and his resurrection. It was completed from heaven's perspective 2,000 years ago. So why could he just not give us that victory to us on earth in its full completeness so that we could go through this life without this heavenly conflict? Why not just give it to us all at once? Now that may seem like either a deep question or a foolish question, depending on your perspective on the matter. But regardless, why is this victory on our side of heaven progressive rather than instantaneous? Why must we go on and fight for it until the end? Why does God take this little by little, I will drive them out approach before there is an increase or an inheritance? If he wants us to inherit this land, this victory, why is he saying, by little and little, I will drive them out from before thee until thou be increased and inherit the land. This is the question that we're going to try to answer today. And I'm going to cut to the chase and say up front why I believe this is. And then I will attempt to dive deeper into explaining it further as we go deeper into the episode. The divine reason for this actual victory, but potential possession of it, is that there must be spiritual 
development in order to possess the territory that the enemy still occupies. Our full possession of victory waits because at certain times in our walk with God, we lack the ability to fully occupy or we lack the spiritual capacity to apprehend the full victory either due to our own spiritual limitations or spiritual immaturity at the time. That is why this process happens little by little. Now let's try to break this thought down. We are told that we alone are responsible for running our race, for keeping the faith and finishing our course. We are told that we are responsible for possessing our own soul's in patience. The kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom. It's not of this world. It's not a temporal kingdom. It is a physical world filled with spiritual people living in flesh bodies, and each one of those flesh bodies has a free will. We ourselves personally have the free will to receive the salvation God offers, or we have the free will to reject it. And every man, woman, and child has the same choice. We all have the same free will choice to be ambassadors of heaven if we receive salvation and serve God completely. We alone, us personally, determine how passionately we will follow after Jesus and how mature we will become as Christians, that's on us. The buck stops at me, and I only have control of me because of my free will and because of free will in general. I don't have control of how hard my neighbor follows after God. I don't have control of whether or not he gets saved. That's his free will choice. And I'll take it even a step further. I, as a man and a husband, have been given the role of leading my house as the priest of my house. But as the priest, I can only serve, lead, and pray. I cannot force my wife's free will. She will grow only to the extent that she follows after God. Now, dominionism wrongly teaches that it's our job to make the nations follow after God, to Christianize them. We are to influence and rule the seven mountains. But this is not a temporal revolution or war. It's a spiritual one. And the only place that we can fully possess and occupy in the end is our own lives or our own vessels, because that's where the free will ends. Now, if we do that properly, if we do fully possess and occupy the spiritual territory, if we do fully possess our own vessels, if we do fully become living witnesses for Christ, it will impact the world around us. It will impact our neighbors. It will impact every single person we meet. Because as we become pure and accurate ambassadors, living and faithful witnesses, the victory of Calvary and the power of Pentecost will flow through us. We will be able to echo Paul when he says, it's no longer I that liveth, but Christ that liveth in me. We will become the temples of the Holy Spirit. We will become the skin tents of God, a living vessel of honor. We will become citizens and ambassadors of another kingdom. We will be of 
another world. We will be mighty warriors who enforce the victory of heaven in our own lives so that in our strength, we will find the weakness to serve others first as Jesus did. We will realize that the greatest war that there is to fight is the one that would hold us back from becoming all that we can be and all that we were called to be. That is the spiritual territory that must be won. And it must be won on the battlefield of our lives. It must prove and it must try and it must purify our commitment to God. King Jesus wants total surrender and complete control of our lives. He gave his all to redeem us, and he has the divine right alone now to require that we surrender everything to him. Now, we don't surrender everything to win salvation for ourselves or to be saved. That is what Jesus did for us. No, we are daily surrendering spiritual territory in our lives so that we can fulfill the mission of spreading the gospel. Because if Satan can hinder us personally in our lives, then he can hinder our mission, our commission, and our calling. But as we close off areas of his influence in our lives, as we close doorways that he uses to enter in and sideline us through, as we close off the areas and the temptations that he uses to oppress us, as we grow, as we begin to walk in the freedom and the victory that the Spirit provides, we grow in our sanctification and we become more like Christ. And Christ is seen more in us. And the world doesn't need to see us. The world needs to see Christ. This is that conflict. To see the testimony of life made manifest in a culture of death. This is a conflict between the natural and the supernatural. So let's look at this conflict spiritually for a moment. Why does this conflict continue day by day, little by little? If we can begin to think in terms of our lives as spiritual territory occupied by spiritual forces and desires, we will see the meaning and the purpose for this spiritual conflict to continue and why God would allow it to continue. You see, we wrestle not with flesh and blood. No natural forces can dispossess these spiritual forces and these spiritual desires that we have. Only spiritual forces and spiritual desires can occupy spiritual territory. Okay, so we often think that if we do a physical act of warfare or a physical program alone, that we will correct that which is spiritual, oftentimes by doing something very fleshly. We mistakenly fight to sanctify our flesh when our flesh cannot be sanctified. The Bible says the spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. We will never be able to sanctify our flesh. We will never be able to make a fallen flesh obey the spirit. The spirit makes the flesh and it puts the flesh under subjection to Christ and to the mind of Christ. The body and the flesh will be perfected at Christ's coming when we receive new bodies 
that will be free from the stain of original sin. But many times, what do we try to do? We try to war against the lust of the flesh in the flesh instead of looking at the spiritual roots of why we crave sin. And instead of attacking that craving through the power of the Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit's love and transforming power, we try to attack the the root surface of the problem in the flesh, and we always fail. You know, many times what we really try to do is we look at the lust of the flesh. We hate the lust of the flesh. We don't want the lust of the flesh to conquer us. So we try to war against the lust of the flesh by any means necessary. And we a lot of times do that, and a lot of times we fight in the flesh instead of looking at the spiritual roots of why we are craving that sin to begin with. And instead of attacking the roots of the sin or the roots of the problem by the power of the Holy Spirit, we turn to things that we can do in our own power to try to fight against those things and gain spiritual territory for ourselves. But the only thing that can supplant that which is spiritual has to be something that is spiritual. We can only fight spiritual things with spiritual power. We can only do that which is spiritual and supplant that which is spiritual by something at least in equal capacity so that in order for that bad thing to be displaced, something good or something spiritual needs to occupy that place instead. I'll give you an example. So so if you didn't catch that, because sometimes I stumble over my words a little bit, let's take lust for issue. I mean, every lust is something that's so, so common to almost every man and woman. We don't displace lust by taking physical steps alone. We can take certain physical steps to curb lust, but we'll never truly displace lust in our heart by doing physical things alone. I mean, you can smash your TV, you can throw out your computer, um, you can burn all your romance novels, but what do you do when you see someone and that, that lust rises up in your heart or in your mind or in the theater of your mind when you close your eyes? You, you can't destroy your brain. No, lust is a spiritual force, and it must be replaced with a spiritual force. Force. It must be replaced with love, and that love comes from the Holy Spirit. If lust can be removed, then it must be replaced by a godly spiritual love in order for that victory to last and to remain. If you're filled with a godly love in the same capacity as you were once filled with lust, then we have the victory over the TV. We have the victory over the computer. We don't need to read those lusty romance novels. We have this victory by default already. Why? Well, 2 Corinthians 5.14 says that it is possible for the love of Christ to constrain us. And that's the point that God wants to get us to. He doesn't want us to merely stop doing sin X, Y, and Z. He wants us to understand why that specific sin grieves God. And he wants us to make a free will choice to forsake it and to fill that empty area with love. He he wants more than just a simple do and don't do set of rules. He wants to empty us 
so that he can fill us. He wants to grow us into spiritual maturity and fill that empty space with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, he takes us through a step-by-step process, little by little, day by day, from glory to glory, from year to year. He makes spiritual ascent and victory dependent on our spiritual growth. And he does that for our protection and for our benefit. One of the most wicked lies of the devil is that God is always going to come in with this mighty act of power, right? And give us victory and growth in one divine Holy Ghost act. It's really one of the most damaging things about this hyper-charismatic movement, this new apostolic reformation movement. It's like people chase these super anointed ones from ministry to ministry, from church to church, for a transference of anointing by the power of laying on of hands. It's like they're seeking a quick transference of victory and deliverance. They're looking for that one mighty act of power. They're looking for that one shortcut victory. We are being conditioned by the things we see on TV and on the internet. We are being conditioned and taught that someone can lay hands on us and that we can expect God to do this supernatural mighty power sign, this mighty power wonder in one moment, in one spontaneous act. I mean, come on, man. How many times have have you gone for someone to pray for you? I know I used to do it. I'd go for someone and I'd be like, please pray for me for this this habit. Please pray for me that I'll gain the victory in in my life, right? And when I was young, I did that a lot. And you could go even to like a charismatic person and, and they could pray for you and you could fall out. But like, let's be real. Let's be honest. An hour later or when you're in the church parking lot even, you're doing the exact same thing that you were just prayed over to do. And you know what happens then? You go home. And, and and you feel more condemnation on your spirit, on your soul, because you've been conditioned that if God loves you and that if God has the best plan for your life now and if and it's God's will for you to always be in this perfect condition and this perfect state of healing and if and if you just speak the right words of faith enough and you have the right person lay hands on you and pray for you, that you'll be delivered in a moment. And when it doesn't happen. You feel that maybe it's your faith that's small. You feel maybe God doesn't love you. You feel that maybe God even hates you because he's not delivering you instantly. But see, that's where this goes all haywire. Because there's a certain point of God that says, look, I need to enlarge you for victory. I need to take you step by step through a process so that you're able to inherit that which I'm about to deliver in victory to you. I'm doing it so that when you stand up against Satan, you will have the strength to actually possess the things I'm moving you into. There are times, I know there are times, and I get it, man. Everyone can point to maybe a time in their life where they've seen somebody get prayed for, or maybe you've been prayed for, for victory or deliverance or healing, and it happens in, in real time, in the moment that someone prays for you. But if we're honest, or if we look at this other person's life, or we look at our own life, if we look at everything and not just the one snapshot of that moment in time, we would see that there is a process that was going on. Maybe for months, or maybe even for years, where people were intersecting with other people, or you were on a spiritual journey. There's always a path to that miraculous point. 
And God might have been working on a number of things for a long time. And then that person comes to that moment of miraculous victory or that miraculous moment of deliverance. And when he brings us to that moment of miraculous victory, we need to ask ourselves, why is he doing it? Why is God taking us through this process? Why is God bringing us into new territory spiritually? Why does he have to enlarge us so that we can possess the spiritual territory or this land? Well, otherwise, we're trying to live in a bigger state of spiritual victory and reality. And our faith at certain moments in our life can be too small to possess it. And that does no one any good. I mean, if we leave ourselves in a state of spiritual passivity, right? A state of lack of spiritual growth, a lack indefinite occupation, we will find ourselves in spiritual trouble more often than not. This whole possession process is for our protection. It really truly is. I mean, like, look at it this way, man. The devil does not believe in having a vacuum. As far as a person's personal spiritual territory is concerned, he will seek to fill it every single time. And Jesus told us this in the parable of the man who was once possessed by a demon, right? This man was once completely Satan's territory. But after this man got saved and the devil got cast out, the demon waited a long time and he found that house empty and swept clear when he came back to revisit it. Basically, there was a vacuum. The empty place was not filled by the Holy Spirit and the things of the kingdom of God. There was a vacuum that was not intended to be there. So what happened? The demon came back and it brought even more of his nasty friends with him. Likewise, the Lord doesn't believe in a vacuum either. He believes in people being full. He believes in the full occupation of the Holy Ghost. And we need to receive that book of Acts, Holy Ghost filling and empowerment. But we have to understand that we're not being given the Holy Ghost merely to speak in tongues or do miracles or to move in the gifts or to be some wielders of some cosmic power. I believe in the gifts of the Spirit, man. I believe in their full manifestation I believe that they should operate biblically and they are given as God divides to benefit and to build up his body. But the main reason that the spirit is given is so that we can walk in the spirit so that we can build a proper temple. We can build for that Holy Ghost a proper house so that he can have a resting place so that we can be clean vessels that the Lord can move through with those spiritual gifts, right? We can have all the spiritual gifts in the world, including tongues. But if we don't have the full capacity to love one another in the power of the Holy Spirit, then we only have vain sounds like crashing cymbals is what the Bible says. We sometimes so reverse this act of building a spirit-filled life. We're so quick to look towards the outcome or the finish line 
of the victory. We always look towards the miraculous and the supernatural. And we always look at the end. And sometimes that leads to the end, justifying the means. But that's not the way that God builds. As a matter of fact, that's not the way we build. When someone builds a house or a building or an office building or a skyscraper, they build a foundation. They set that foundation and then intense seasons of work go into building that building so that you can fill that building one day with furniture and people. And this is the way the Lord works. He enlarges us on the foundation of his word and our obedience to it. We grow in the spirit and that is how we occupy and lay hold of our victory. That is how we become enforcers, enforcing the rule and the victories of heaven in our lives. And just like Joshua entering the promised land, we too must take personal spiritual territory in our lives and possess them and fill them with the power of the Holy Ghost. So I'm going to close by sharing some lessons that we can learn from Joshua's conquest of Canaan. First, we must understand, like Joshua did, that the battle belongs to the Lord. We must believe no other report. When Joshua and Caleb and the spies went in to check out the land, all they saw was the spiritual evil and the giants of the land. Those 12 spies came back, and Joshua and Caleb didn't say it, but the other people said it. They said, we look like grasshoppers in their eyes. They had this grasshopper mentality that that said, we're too small, but our giants, these giants we face, are so very big. And when we look at spiritual enlargement, we look at the things that we have to overcome and the obstacles that we have to face. And sometimes, and just in the natural, we can feel so small. When we look at our sins and our temptations, they seem so big. There's sometimes hopelessness sets in and we'll say, will we ever, ever, ever conquer our giants? Will we ever truly conquer our sin? But Joshua and Caleb were like, what did Yahweh promise us? What did the angel of the Lord say? The angel of the Lord has been going before us little by little, even now over the last year, and he's been killing those giants. He is able to give us this land. Who can stand against our God? And yet how many died in the wilderness because they could not see that victory through the eyes of faith, but they only saw their defeat through the eyes of disbelief. You see, God's promises and his word is sure. And he is alive and it is unchanging. His victory is there and he has promised to give us possession of our souls and enlarge us if we have the patience to possess ye our souls. If we have the patience to work this out step by step, little by little, day by day. If we have the fortitude to become enforcers, to enforce the victory of heaven in our life through the surrender to the Spirit and by the feeding of the Spirit and the stirring up of those gifts within us. When we begin to see Jesus and not our giants, when we begin to see that the the angels are on our side, that the angelic host is fighting these battles for us. When we begin to see that the battle is already won and through our faith and our obedience and through our tenaciousness, we can feed the spirit and we can rise up and we can overcome the lusts of our flesh. 
That is when we begin to enlarge ourselves. That is when we begin to take possession of the land. The next thing that we must do is when we realize the victory is the Lord's, we must walk in gratitude, we must walk in obedience, and we must walk in spiritual worship before the Lord our God. And we must do so in gratitude for the victory that he is working out within us. When Joshua gets to Jericho, what happens? He meets the angel of the Lord, who I believe is the pre-incarnate second person of the Trinity. In this passage, not only is he that, but he is the commander of the Lord's angelic army. He is the Lord of hosts. And this battle for Jericho is already going on in some level when Joshua meets him. This 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 pre-incarnate Christ, this angel of the Lord, his sword is drawn as if he's in the midst of battle. He's saying, this battle, this victory is the Lord's. I'm going to give you this city. There may be giants in there and those walls may be really big, but I, I am going to give you this battle. I am going to give you this victory. We read this in Joshua chapter 6, starting at verse 1. It says, Now Jericho was straightly shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out, none came in. And the Lord said unto Joshua, See, I have given into thine hand Jericho, and the king thereof, and the mighty men of valor. And ye shall compass the city, all ye men of war, and go round about the city once. Thou shalt do six days. And seven priests shall bear before the ark, seven trumpets of ram's horns. And on the seventh day ye shall compass the city seven times, and the priests shall blow with the trumpets, and it shall come to pass that when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, and all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the walls of the city shall fall flat, and the people shall ascend up every man straight before him. You see, man, this city was on lockdown because of the war that was going on. And the children of Israel, they were there. And the people, they they straightly shut that place up. Now, this place may have been filled with a mighty king and mighty men of valor. There may have been giants in there. There could have been Nephilim in there. All these dark, demonic things were inside of that city. They were locked up because the fear of the Lord was there. They were scared. There was a battle happening in the unseen and the seen. And the Lord is saying unto Joshua, See, I give unto thine hands Jericho. I give you the king thereof and all the mighty men of valor. This city is theirs for the taking. They weren't to get freaked out by the size of the giants or the size of the giant wall or how many valiant warriors of Jericho there were. These people were mighty men themselves. These people were warriors. They were all ye men of war. They were priests. They were to march around the city seven days, and the priests were to blow the trumpet of victory. They were to shout and proclaim the victory with holy worship and gratitude. They were to proclaim what was potential for them was already fulfilled in heaven. But most people today want to get all the way straight to the shouting without the seven days of walking. Let me say that again. Most people today want to get straight to all the shouting without the seven days of walking. Now, we all know biblically seven is the number of completion. 
And as we walk in the spirit, we don't fulfill the lust of the flesh, but we must keep walking in the spirit, step by step, day by day, year by year. We may stumble and fall sometimes, but we must rise back up. I mean, like how many miracles truly get left on the altar that we do not possess because we stop on day six. We fall one too many times and we don't rise back up. We have the power to walk when we remember the one who took on human flesh and walked perfectly amongst us, tempted as we were, but without sin. We surrender our lives and lay them down when we remember the surrender of Calvary and we rise back up when we remember that day of resurrection where even the heaviest stone in the darkness of night had to give way to the power of a resurrected Christ. And finally, we possess the spiritual territory fully when we refuse to stop walking until it is complete, until our race is one. The saddest part of this account is that they did go on to possess the land and they had a measure of success for a season. They had milk and honey for a season. They had victory for a season. They had a time of peace and contentment. They had glory days, but they never fully possessed the land. They never fully drove out all the previous inhabitants. They left room for their enemies in the corners. And sooner rather than later, they became enslaved in their own land of promise. And God had to rise up judges to free them in a land that they should have freely possessed. And oftentimes, the greatest spiritual threat that we face is plain complacency. We fail to grow or we get to that spiritual sweet spot where we are like, hey, man, this is all good. I'm happy. I'm blessed. My ministry is popping off and growing. Man, I got that promotion. My kids are happy. I found me the perfect wife. I am blessed. Man, I'm living that promised land life. Man, I'm digging all this milk and honey. And then we tend to stop short. And we tend to camp out in this area of victory. And we never fully comprehend. We never fully enlarge into the things that God would truly have us to do, the greater works. We see the victory and we say, man, these are good victories. And and we need to stop and we need to celebrate these victories. But instead of celebrating with praise and gratitude, we look at the victories as just like the finish line. Instead of a another opportunity for further enlargement, we stop and we camp out in the pleasant lands because it's better than the shadow valleys. We grow in those shadow lands. That's where we grow. We grow more in sorrow than we do in the good times. That gives us the reason to press on. That spurs us on to grow. Why? Because we have a destiny that's so important. God isn't enlarging us for our own blessing. He's enlarging us to be a blessing to the body of Christ and also to a world that needs to see a living, resurrected Christ. There's a story of 
a girl who went into a Pentecostal church, and I heard this in the School of Christ, and it was like one of those stories that kind of stuck with me. And I know I share a lot of these stories, but sometimes it's these stories that really drive home points, right? So Pastor Clendenin, he's telling the story of this girl, and she comes into the church, and it's a revival meeting, and like the worship, it went long, and the preaching went even longer. And at the end of the service, the pastor gets up and he shuts it down and doesn't give Brother Clendenin a time for an altar call or anything else. It's the first night of the revival, and Pastor Clendenin always preaches real long on the first night of the revival. Pastor gets a little skittish and thinks about time constraints and just shuts it down, which, you know, you probably shouldn't do. But here's the thing. Here comes this girl, and she's all mad. She's all upset. And she goes to the pastor, and she goes to Brother Clendenin, who's the evangelist there at this point, and she's all upset. And she's like, you should have allowed there, there to be room for the altar call at the end, which, you know, in theory is right. She's like, now, I need it. I came tonight because I needed you all to pray for me. And you didn't give me the opportunity to get prayed for. You all needed to pray for me. And Brother Clendenin looks at her, and he's not being snarky, and he's not being angry, and he's not trying to hairlip the pastor. He just simply looks at the girl and says, Sister, are you saved? And the girl goes, Yes, yes, I am your sister. I am saved. And and Pastor Clendenin says, How long have you been saved and walking with the Lord? And, and she's like, Well, I've been walking with the Lord now for seven years. And Pastor Clendenin's like, have you received the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Have you been filled with the Spirit of God? She's like, yes. And, and the girl's like, I have been. And Pastor Clendenin's well, like, how long have you been Spirit-filled, walking in the gifts of the Spirit? And she's like, for the last five years. And Pastor Clendenin said, well then, I'm sure you should have came and prayed for us. We didn't, we didn't need to pray for you. You needed to pray for us because there are people here that needed prayer. And unfortunately, we didn't get a chance to do that because this pastor shut the meeting down. Ouch. I mean, if you can't say amen, say ouch. You know, we're spiritual consumers, but we're rarely spiritual givers. We're so obsessed with being transformed for the benefits that it brings to us that we forget that we're being transformed for a greater purpose. We're being enlarged for greater purposes. These spiritual gifts, man, God wants to use them through us. He wants those spiritual gifts to flow through us, but he wants to do it to mature and to strengthen the body. And more than that, he wants us to be ambassadors. He's calling us forth to be living witnesses, to preach this gospel in spirit and truth, to become the message that we proclaim. And man, we must become the message. And we must boldly preach this message with our words. But our lives must match our words. That is why we're being sanctified daily so that we can be that living witness. And this is a process. This does go step by step, day by day, year by year. And don't let the devil jump all over you, telling you you need to be further along at the process than you are. Now, if you're wallowing in the same place for years and years and years and years and years, then you need to ask the Holy Ghost to revive you and to kick you in the seat a little bit. But if you're walking with the Lord day by day, if you're daily searching the Scriptures, if you're daily trying to make room to pray and seek after the things of God, 
then that is what we should be doing because we are conforming ourselves to the image of Christ so that we can gain his mind. That is our mission. And that is the point of this first series in our bride boot camp. We must proclaim this gospel of Christ until Jesus is fully preached, until they see Jesus in every word of Scripture and every part of our lives. Then and only then can the scroll be rolled up, the book closed, and we can cross that finish line, having run our race and fought a good fight. Next month, we're going to start our second series in Bride Boot Camp. We're going to continue to build on this foundation of Jesus. Our next series will be Spirit-Filled Discipleship. In the next few lessons, we're going to learn what it means to be Christ-like and what it means to be his followers and students. Thank you for listening to another episode of Bride Boot Camp. Go forth in the power and the love of God. Reclaim that spiritual territory in your life. Let the buck stop with you. Take it day by day. Walk in the spirit. Tear down strongholds and idols. Possess that absolute victory. Enforce the rule of heaven on your life. And then let that light shine forth from you to a dark world that needs to see it. Because as these days get darker, as people fear more of the times, we don't have to buy into that fear and we don't need to fear the future because in the end, Yeshua will always win. Grace and peace, my brothers and my sisters and my fellow men and women of war in Jesus Christ. Amen. As this week's episode draws to a close, I want to share with you how you can become a citizen of the kingdom of God. Because if you desire freedom from this world system of slavery to sin, there is hope. The gospel, or the good news of the kingdom, is that through repentance and the finished work of Christ that's revealed to us in his death, burial, and resurrection, there is redemption. There is restoration. There is a freedom offered to us by God to each and every person who would receive Christ as the king of this kingdom. It says this in Mark 1.15, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye, and believe the gospel. Today can be your day. In this moment right now, you can choose to serve King Jesus and surrender your life to him. You can switch your allegiances. You can turn from the kingdom of darkness and begin to walk in the newness of life. And that new life, it can only come as the result of a supernatural work by the Holy Spirit. You see, salvation and repentance, it's a supernatural act. It's something that God gives to us, and it's only possible because of His grace. No one can repent unless God grants that repentance. John 6.44 tells us that no man can come unto Jesus except the Father which sent Jesus draws him 
by the Holy Spirit. So it's the Holy Spirit that opens our eyes to our sinful condition. He births godly sorrow within us over our sins, and He allows us to see sin as God sees it. And it's this insight that brings a supernatural desire to change our hearts, to take that first step in a new direction away from the sin that's destroying us and into the liberty that frees us. So if you feel the urging of the Holy Spirit to obey the call of the gospel and enter into the new covenant of a relationship with the one and only true God of the universe through the blood of Christ, then please accept the invitation that it gives to you in Isaiah 1.18 where he says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Now, one way you could do this, one way you could reason with God, would be to prayerfully examine Exodus chapter 20 and read for yourself God's standard of perfection. Let them serve as an honest guide to the state of your life. Do a moral inventory of your life and then simply and honestly ask the Holy Spirit to show you the things in your life that don't line up with that standard. Ask Him to soften your heart so that you can begin to see your sin as God sees it. Ask Him to literally trouble your heart with godly sorrow over the times that you broke the laws of God. When that happens, soon you will realize that Romans 3.23 is true when it says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But if Romans 3.23 is true, that also means that Romans 5 verse 8 must also be true. And it says this, But God demonstrates His own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus died to save you from your sins. And you can ask the Holy Spirit to give you the faith and the supernatural strength in this moment to call upon Jesus to save you from your sins. Now just do that from the honesty of your own heart. In your own words, begin to call out to Jesus to save you. Lay down your old life and put on His new life instead. And realize that in Christ, through His blood, you can boldly approach the throne of grace and find the peace that passes all understanding, knowing that the Father sees the sacrifice of His Son where your sins used to be. Now, if I can help you further, either by talking with you more about the covenant of salvation that was paid for by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, or if I can encourage you to take the next step in living a sold-out, radical kingdom life for Him, please visit OmegaFrequency.com and click on the navigational link entitled Salvation. From there, you're going to find a button that says, Please help me take the next step. And if you use it, I'll be able to communicate with you specifically about this matter. Well, as always, I want to thank you once again for taking the time to download this week's episode. It has been my honor to be able to spend time with you this week and discuss the things of Christ and His kingdom with you. Until next time, may Yahweh bless thee and keep thee.
Thank you so much for listening. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please consider sharing it with someone else. New episodes of Omega Frequency air on Mondays. And if you subscribe to us in iTunes, you'll never miss an episode. Our full podcast archives of previously aired shows, along with their original show notes, can be found online at omegafrequency.com. And we are also blessed to be part of the Fourth Watch Radio Network. Please visit fourthwatchradio.com today and check out a wide variety of episodes that cover paranormal and prophetic topics from a biblical perspective. Now, until next time, this is BDK reminding you that we don't need to fear the future, because in the end, Yeshua wins.